0: Church, if you don't know how blessed that you are by the people that serve us Sunday after Sunday in music, you're not paying attention. Thank you all very, very, very much. Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Michael read the passage to us, verses 35 through 45. And we're talking about kingdom prominence. And really, Jesus focuses on our, the fact that we're prone to desire prominence. Have you ever had to learn a lesson more than once? Uh, yeah, like, like a million times. That, that would be my answer. Well, the disciples did too. You may have been thinking whenever you we're listening, when, when you're listening to the passage read this morning, this, this sounds very familiar, and, and uh, it should, because it was just covered, this, this very lesson was just covered a couple chapters ago. Jesus goes back over it with his disciples this morning because they didn't get it the first time, and that's evidenced by their actions in this, in this passage. Aren't you glad that Jesus is a patient teacher? I am. You might recall back in chapter nine at the end, when Jesus is coming to the end of his Galilean ministry, the disciples are walking along the road, and Jesus is out in front of them, and they begin a discussion about who is greatest in the kingdom while they're traveling along. And even though they try to keep it to themselves, Jesus knows exactly what the discussion was about, and he asks them whenever they when they get inside, What 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 were you discussing along the way? And they didn't answer out of embarrassment, so Jesus calls class to order and and he and he instructs them he says, "If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all, and the servant of all and here in mark chapter ten is the very same topic and and almost the the very same words and and they need some more training on the, on the topic. And sadly, this will not be the last time that, that Jesus has to teach them this, this lesson. In fact, while Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room, right during the Passover feast, just a few hours before Jesus is crucified, the disciples are arguing about who is greatest in Luke 22 and 24. Listen to Luke 22 Verse 24, and there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest at the Passover meal. The Lord's Supper, no less. And Jesus repeats the lesson again there. And he says in Luke 22 during the Passover "Behold, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you that the one who is greatest among you must become like the least and the leader like the servant. And he ends with this, I am among you as one who serves. And Jesus, in that same room, picks up the towel and the basin and cleans the feet of the disciples to illustrate that. And Judas departs to earn his 30 pieces of silver in that same, that same scene. And in our passage, Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem. We saw that. He just gave the third passion prediction about his death with the most detail that he's given the disciples up to this point. And the disciples are preoccupied with their position and their, their privileges. And they needed this lesson three times. And you and I need this lesson probably more than three times, but at least three times which is why God records all three of them. Now, did you ever think about this? God doesn't record every lesson that Jesus taught in the pages of Scripture. In fact, John, at the end of his Gospel, said that if all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said was written in the books, the world wouldn't be able to contain the books. But the ones that God does record in the Bible are there for our help, and the ones that He repeats, we we really need. And the Holy Spirit records this three times because we are prone to the very same preoccupation with self. Are we not? You don't believe me? Who do you think about most? Yourself or, or others? Who's the main character in your mind? When you listen to a sermon or read your Bible... You're often thinking, most of the time thinking, you know, so what? What does this have to do with me? How do I apply this to my life? What about your prayers? Who is the main focus of your prayers? Yourself or, or others? Is it not true that you have to put together a prayer list or prayer cards or discipline yourself to actually pray for others? But it becomes very, very it's very, very easy. To, to tell God what your needs are and, and what it is that, that you're anxious about or preoccupied about. And God is a good Father. He wants to hear you. He says, come, I'm, I'm, I'm gracious, I will grant wisdom. But, but we, think about, we think about ourselves. We can even make our, our walk with Christ about ourselves. We can even make Christianity about ourselves. Exactly what the disciples are doing here. We have a penchant and a proclivity to overestimate our importance and to underestimate God's. We're prone to prominence. We fall to the pride of presumption, just like the disciples. And Jesus says the antidote is found in the description of discipleship. True discipleship is found in submitting and serving. You could sum up the Christian life that way. Submitting and serving. Submitting your heart... Completely to God, you become a living sacrifice, and then you you serve. You, you serve God and you serve others. The Christian life is not one of self-importance or self-fulfillment, but abandoning the entirety of your agenda and placing yourself completely under God's. Are you listening? The most frustration, most of the frustration the disillusionment, the grumbling, and the dissatisfaction that Christians have is because they fail to grasp the nature of discipleship. They fail to grasp what I just said. The Christian life is not one of self-importance or self-fulfillment, but abandoning the entirety of your agenda and placing yourself completely under God's. Frustration, disillusionment, grumbling, dissatisfaction comes because we misinterpret Christianity. God is not looking for your dream, your ministry, your plan. In fact, I would say He doesn't even care about it. Because it's not about you and it's not about me. He's not calling you to change the world. That's what Jesus did. Jesus changed the world. He's calling you to die to yourself and to follow Him. And Jesus knows this is true even even more so for the disciples that are following Him to Jerusalem. And and His response is the antidote to overestimation that comes out in ambition and self-inflation which comes out in anger and envy. And you see that in all twelve of the disciples. Two with ambition and ten with this anger that comes from, from envy. And the Lord gives us three corrections Three corrections Jesus makes to a preoccupation with with self in this passage. He teaches us that we are prone to prominence in verses 35 through 40. He teaches us that we fall to the pride of presumption in verse 41 in the response of the the other ten. And he teaches us, the antidote is in the description of discipleship in verses 42 through 45. The example that the Son of Man, our Savior, gives us in life in ministry, and ministry and in all things. Let's look at the first one. He teaches us that we're prone to prominence. The first lesson about a preoccupation with self, which is what's going on in the disciples' hearts, is we are prone to prominence. Look at verse 35, if you will. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now think about that. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you before they ever, before they ever even ask. We, we want you to agree that whatever we're getting ready to say, you'll do. And Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, and He's given the third prediction of His death. And immediately following the words of Jesus, there's evidence that the disciples don't grasp the mission and what's required of the cross. There's a parallel passage in Matthew 20 and it says their mother comes and, and she bows and they all bow, the mother first and then the two sons. And then they ask, he says, what do you, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Now, in ancient times, kings elevated people who who were the very highest of rank in their kingdom to the right and the left hand. You've heard that before. And it's obvious here. Now, think about the question they're asking. It's obvious that they see Jesus as the Messiah. They say, we want the position at the right hand and the left hand when you enter into your glory. So it's very clear that they're acknowledging who Jesus is. We're going to Jerusalem. You're the Messiah. And you're going to enter into glory. What, what's also obvious from their question is that they don't grasp what the Messiah will do. They get the who part, but they totally miss the what. Who He is, Messiah. What He will do, suffer and die, and be humiliated, they don't get. And might I say, you need both for salvation. You must believe who Jesus is. He is God, and you must believe what Jesus did. He died for your sins. Without either one of those, there is no salvation. It's not a good teacher it's, it's, it's not anything other than the death of God as a substitute for sinners, the righteous one for the unrighteous one. Now, Jesus, in his response though, points them in, in two directions. Verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And be baptized with the baptism which with which I am baptized. He points them in two directions. And look at verse forty. But to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not for mine to give. This is not mine to give. But it's for those who for whom it has been prepared. It's, it's for the Father to give. And so Jesus says position in God's kingdom is associated with submission to his work. The 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 cup of the baptism position in the coming kingdom is directly related to your association with God's work. And he describes that work as the cup and the baptism that he's going to accomplish. And then prominence, being able to actually sit, is associated with submission to God's will. It's It's the Father's choice of who actually sits in these positions of prominence. And he talks about those two things, the cup and the baptism, and the Father's will, for whom it has been prepared. In verse 38, when Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking, he's saying to sit to me close in glory will mean you'll suffer with me on earth. And... And the Son of Man's work is described, and Jesus uses two metaphors, and He uses them intentionally. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with my baptism, in, or the baptism that, with which I am baptized? And, and the reference is to His suffering and, and to His death. Jesus is implying to them, it's impossible for you to do that. It's impossible for for you to drink. You cannot drink the cup of wrath that brings about salvation. You cannot be baptized in the overwhelming flood that's coming upon me. And that's exactly what I'm going to Jerusalem to do. And in the Old Testament, the cup of wine was a common metaphor for the wrath of God's judgment upon human sin and upon rebellion. And baptism was used to speak of an association with the message you're a teacher. You, you remember that Jesus steps forward and is baptized by John the Baptist. When baptism is tied to the cup directly, in the Old Testament, it, it means associating with sinners that he's drinking the cup for. And John came to prepare God's people for their Messiah. They needed to repent, to prepare them for the message of salvation. You remember what, what John says, I must decrease, he must increase. And Jesus was baptized. Jesus didn't need to repent, did He? No. He was sinless. Even John said this, You need to baptize me. You remember that? But Jesus said, Suffer it to be so. Fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was saying, I am, I am stepping forward. I'm associating with your message, John, of repentance and judgment that's coming on sinners, even though I'm without sin. I'm associating with the sinners, standing in their place as a substitute for them. And that's how he begins his ministry and now he's about he's actually about to become that substitute of, of, of God's wrath and Jesus will bear the judgment earned not by him but by the sins of, of men and the sinners that that he represents. that's what the covenant of baptism means but I don't miss. Their response, because it it shows their blindness. Look at verse thirty nine. They said to that response to what Jesus just says, "My cup, my baptism, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to Jerusalem." Right after he tells them exactly what that means in the in the previous passage, they said, "We're able." I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> do you realize what you're saying? The answer to verse 38 should be no. No, we can't. You're right. We we can't do that, but not yes. Their original question reveals they don't understand what Jesus came to do. And if there was any doubt, their answer here proves it. Yes, we are able. Notice what he says next. And Jesus said to them in verse 39, The cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Now, that's not a contradiction. He says, can you? And he's implying you can't. It's impossible for you to drink the cup of the wrath of God for sinners and and to step forward and to be associated with them. But now he says, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. Now, notice, he'll drink it first. And then we will follow. The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. To share someone's cup means to associate with them. To share in their fate. And Jesus is saying, that's what you associate with if you want to associate with His glory later. The point is, the closer you want to be to me in glory means the closer you want to be with me in, in suffering. It's the cup first and then the crown. And it's Christ that does that first and then we follow after him. Glory follows suffering. This is also a, a lesson that the disciples get taught over and over. You want to be closer in heaven? Be like me on the earth. And then he describes to them what that looks like. But even then, to sit in these honored positions, to have kingdom prominence, is determined by God's will. Look at verse 40. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. Now, wait a minute. Jesus is God. Who, who else could be greater than greater than Him? Whose who's right would it be to grant that? It is for those to whom it has been prepared. The place of honor they ask for is, is either at the messianic banquet or, or authority when Jesus is enthroned as the king and the judge. I mean, who asks for that that doesn't think too highly of themselves? I mean, when I, I want to sit down here. I don't even want to sit up on the stage. I, I like to sit in the back. <laughs> who asks to sit at the right hand and the left hand of the Messiah in His glory? when they should have been rejoicing that they're even that they're even invited. And Jesus says, that's for the Father to grant. And it will be decided by Him alone. Who will be the most exalted person in heaven? I have no idea. I don't know. And it's probably not anybody that you know. And it's probably not any of us in here. That would probably be a fair statement, wouldn't it? <laughs> but I know it won't be someone who thinks they should be exalted in heaven. Or on earth for that matter. Whoever it will be, the Father will grant, but it won't be because of selfish ambition. And the quest for prominence in the Christian life reveals a failure to understand the gospel. And that's what Jesus is teaching the disciples here. We are blind, crippled beggars who are invited in on somebody else's merits, and we should act like it, both on earth and whatever we expect out of heaven. We shouldn't expect the chief seats here, and we surely shouldn't expect to be at the right and the left hand of the throne there. Jesus is is showing His submission. There's, There's submission within the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit are all God. They're all equal, but they have different roles. And Jesus submits to the plan of the Father. The Father sends the Son to be the Savior of the world. And the Son comes. And the Son submits to the Father's plan. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I'm not exalted, or I am exalted, I should say, because of the Father. The Father exalts the Son because the Son submits to the Father's plan and accomplishes the Father's plan. And if you're going to be exalted in heaven, you submit to the Father's plan. And when the, when the Father determines where to exalt you in heaven, that's exactly where you'll be. And you shouldn't worry about anything else because you should just be thankful that you're there. What he's saying, and that's exactly how we should act. We surely then shouldn't get angry if God decides to use or exalt someone else, and that's the second lesson Jesus teaches us. Not only are we we prone to prominence, but we we fall to the pride of presumption. Now look, if you would, at verse 41. Hearing this. So, hearing this, the ten. So the ten are watching. They're on the road. They're going to Jerusalem. They just hear about the passion. And they're all walking along. Remember, Jesus is out in front of them. He's pulling them along in the train of His determination. He's out front. And they're amazed by how He's pressing to Jerusalem. And remember, last week, the others that are around can sense something's happening, and they're fearful because they don't really know the Messiah. And he is—he set his face like a flint. He's moving to Jerusalem. And as he's going along, James and John and the mother catch up with him, and they bow before him, and Jesus obviously stops. And they say, grant to us whatever we're getting ready to ask you. And then this discussion happens. And the other ten are listening in. And as the conversation goes along, they become indignant. They get very angry. There are two indications that you're preoccupied with yourself or your own agenda. How do you know? We say, well, I don't think I'm preoccupied with, my, with myself. I don't even know what prone to prominence means. Well, let me give you two very simple indicators that you're operating under your own agenda. Ambition and anger. When those two things are found in your life or in your heart, it's a good indicator that you are outside of the will of God. Not mean sinful ambition. Not ambition to get humble and to get low, but ambition to grasp for prominence. Or anger when somebody else might get it. That's that's why they're they're angry. Angry. Ambition shows an inflated understanding of your position. You don't ask sit, to sit next to the king when you, when you understand that you're an unknown peasant. <laughs> you ask to sit next to the king when you think you're one of the few princes that are the, 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 that's there. God is very lucky to have me in His work. And there are people who actually think that way or act that way. And anger shows an incorrect understanding of your importance. You get angry because you think you have rights. And somebody else is trampling those rights. Hey, why do they get to sit in a place of honor? Wait, wait a minute. It, it, and if you say that you have rights to have an opinion that, that matters, then you miss the fact that, that you're just a bond slave and you should be grateful to serve. Both reveal you're preoccupied with yourself by either brashly asking for a position that was not earned or envying something that was that was granted by, by grace. Well, what does Jesus say? These positions are granted by grace. they're, they're granted by, by the fact that you're in the kingdom and you whoever whoever is going to be at the right and the left hand, they're going to, to, to follow after, the, after I drink the cup and the baptism, they're going to associate with me. That's the way their life's going to be. And God the Father, by grace, is going to bring them into the kingdom and they're going to have prominence in the kingdom, all by grace. You, you have no right to brag here and you're definitely not going to have any right to brag in heaven, right? And they get angry whenever they hear that. And Jesus says to have position in the kingdom comes from associating with the king's suffering. And even then it's up to God to decide the position his servants hold. After all, the son's work is is carrying out the will of the the father. But those who who get angry at the thought of someone else being ranked ahead of them, regardless of, of how it comes about, reveals that they have an inflated view of themselves. They should be rejoicing that they're even present, regardless of who's ranked ahead of them. I mean, getting upset with someone else's prominence reveals that, that you presume you should have some. Now, the ten here, when it says, hearing this, the ten began to, to feel indignant with James and John. I mean, they're not sitting there saying, what a couple a couple pompous guys. I mean, our Lord just reminded us that He's the Messiah and He's going to go lay down His life. And they're talking about position. That's not what they're doing. This is not righteous indignation. They aren't getting mad because the glory of God was trespassed upon. I mean, Why do they care? Why do they care? What's it to them? Who sits where? Where's the anger come from? Where's the anger come from in you? They're angry because they think that they have a shot at those positions. The ten are angry because these two have asked to take the positions they presume that they might have for themselves. What's the other two discussions about? All, all twelve were arguing amongst themselves who was great. At the Lord's Supper, all twelve were talking amongst themselves, who was the greatest? And we also know that this is not holy indignation because Jesus corrects all twelve of them. Look at look at verse forty-two. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, It's all of them. So here. Two of them get ambition, go directly to the boss and ask for the position. They take their mother for added measure, and this other ten are crying foul. They got preempted. That's not fair to push to the front of the line. And so they get angry at them, and the anger reveals where their focus is. The Bible describes two types of, of, of anger. One is good and the other is evil. Righteous indignation and selfish anger. Righteous indignation is proper and it's holy. Not all anger is sinful. God gets angry. God is angry with the wicked every day. If you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, God is angry with you. And the only way that you can escape that is to to cover yourself in the love of Jesus that God also offers to you because He's merciful. Righteous indignation is proper and holy. Its its target is something or someone that injures the glory of God, and, and you feel that. It's what we feel when the glory of Christ is molested in some way, when a person maligns the truth or blasphemes God. You 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 might have something that rises up. You can read it in Psalms. It's what David feels about the about the about the wicked. It's what I feel when. When I hear Jesse Duplantis saying that Jesus was depressed one night and and Jesus asked Jesse to comfort Him. It's what I feel whenever I hear Joel Osteen tell people a false gospel. Righteous indignation. Righteous indignation is what you feel for a system that abuses another person who's made in the image of God. Maybe like Planned Parenthood. Righteous indignation. It's about God first and then man. It's directed at the problem which is an enemy of God. Selfish anger, on the other hand, that you see here is, is, is wrong and it's wicked. And its target is another person that you perceive is taking something from you. Selfish or sinful anger is all about your rights and what, and what you deserve. It, it might be anger directed at your, at your children or your boss or your spouse when they inconvenience you when you're busy. You get angry because you have to deal with it. They're encroaching on your peace that you think you deserve, and so you lash out. You deserve a break today, right? We're told that we drink this in like water on a daily basis. And selfish anger comes when something is infringing upon your agenda. That's what James 4 says. You desire and you cannot obtain, so you war and you murder. And selfish anger shows that you have a competing agenda with God. The two may look really, really bad, but the ten look bad as well. They have a competing agenda with Jesus Christ. Desiring prominence means you think too highly of yourself. When you should rejoice that you're even invited. invited. And getting angry with others means you have an inflated view of yourself when you should be rejoicing that you're even present, regardless of who is ranked ahead of you. And both of the groups were wrong, and so Jesus calls class into session and corrects all twelve by giving them the description of discipleship. Look, if you would, at verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you, among you, my followers. This is the way the world acts. And this is the way you act as my, my followers. And he gives the description of discipleship. The son suffers, the son submits to the father, and the, and the son serves. Now, what's he saying? When he says, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, what's he saying? He's saying, wait a minute, where did you learn what you're doing? Where did you learn to ask me for prominence? And where did you learn to get angry about someone else that you think is taking your position or your rights or thwarting your agenda? Where did you learn this? You did not learn this from me. You did not learn this from God. You did not learn this from the Scriptures. Where did you learn this kind of attitude? Where did it come from? It comes from the fallen world, not, not Christ's kingdom. Isn't that exactly what Satan promised in the garden? You do this and you will be wise. You will be like God. You will be exalted. The clearest example then of what true discipleship does look like not what the world peddles, not what the disciples have picked up, not what we pick up. The, true, the truest example looks like the Lord Himself, what, what He does. Verse 43, but it's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. There's a contrast here. Now we've covered these passages before, or the meaning before about about a servant and a slave. The the parallel. But but the main point's the contrast. The contrast of 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 what they're doing and that they learned it from the world, and this is not what we do, This this is how we act, because we follow after Christ. He's we're not we're not to be like a Lord, we're to be like a like a servant. And also your position, you're not like a Lord. You're like a servant. And your position is not, like a, is not like a great one or a great man or a great woman. It's like a slave. Slaves have no rights and, and they're surely not, not prominent. Now, Jesus is not just giving lessons on leadership. You need to be a servant leader. I mean, He's turning everything upside down. I mean, of course... You know, I mean, even unbelievers—you'll find, you know, progressives and millennials and warm fuzzy CEOs today that you know that, that, that just want to be nice to their employees and, and they they want to they want to give them all this all these things. That, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying be a CEO but be a really nice one, be a Lord but just don't act like it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the kingdom paradigm is completely upside down. It's, it's radical. There, there are no CEOs in my kingdom. There, 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 there is no one great in my kingdom. There's nobody recognized as a Lord or someone who exercises uh, authority. That's not the way it works in the church following me. And that's the contrast. You're not like a Lord. You're like a You're like a servant. You say, you know, I don't know the Bible like, like, like you, pastor, or, or I, I'm, not, I, I'm not willing to, to give up you know, everything. I haven't been called to go to wherever as a missionary. You don't need to be, okay? If that's not what God's called you to do, but, but you are called to be a servant. I and mean, you think about how level the playing field is. You are a servant, and being a servant is how you, you, you serve you, you glorify Christ. And the ones that serve the most, the ones that nobody thinks about, the ones that, that, that no one even it even, even crossed their mind, those are the ones that, that you're going to see close to the throne in heaven. Anyone in the kingdom who is in a position sees others as their field of service, not for being served. That's what it means to lord it over. Gentiles use their authority over their subjects. Anyone in the kingdom who is considered great is under authority. Christ's leadership is totally different. It involves being used. Being used. You say, I don't want to be used. I don't want to be a Christian doormat. Then you don't understand discipleship. Now, I'm not talking... I'm talking meekness. You're spent... You're you're to spend and be spent... It involves being used, being used by God, though, and being used for others. And they're all missing it, and he's modeling it. Look at what he says in verse 45. Here's the exclamation point. Notice it starts with four. For even the Son of Man. I mean, he gives this contrast between what, what where they're evidencing, what they've learned and he's showing them what they need to do. This is my teaching. You're, you're my followers. Church, this is the way it works. This is, this is, this is how you align yourself. and This is how you live. And then he explains it. Here's the explanation. Because you're my disciples. I'm first. I do this first and then you follow me. I drink the cup and I'm baptized. And then you follow after the cup. And, and, and in the same baptism, you do what I do. And here's what I did in verse 45. For the explanation for even the Son of Man did not come to be, to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Here's the explanation or the basis of His statement that He just gave about prominence in the kingdom, how the kingdom works, about being great and first in the kingdom. The Son suffers. The Son of Man, He's the Son of Man. He gives His life. He takes the cup and the baptism. The the Son submits to the Father. He came because the Father sent Him. It's the Father's plan. The Father is not greater than the Son, but they each have distinct roles, and Jesus submits to the Father. And the Son serves. He is God, and yet He serves sinners by His obedience on the cross and pays a ransom to God. He doesn't pay a ransom to Satan. He pays a ransom to God. And that ransom is applied to all who will believe. The Son will suffer, He'll submit, and He'll serve. He'll not grasp glory. Isn't that what Philippians 2 says? Even though He was God, that position is not something that He grasped, He grabbed a hold of. And His disciples will model His life. That's what a disciple is. They follow their teacher. And as disciples, we will associate with Him no matter the cost, which will include suffering. As disciples, we'll submit to the Father. Positions and prominence are for the Father to give, not ours to gain. And as disciples, our lives are, are to be used up in serving. Your rights and your agenda are not... Christian. That's what Jesus says. And it's an evidence of the fall whenever those come up in your heart. And when you act on those, you're operating according to the world system. And you're operating by the flesh. And Jesus puts the exclamation point on this passage by comparing it to the Son of Man. The Son of Man, God Himself, wasn't served but took a low position. Not even God did this, Jesus says. Not even your own master did this. But you're asking for your rights and your agenda so you can be served. The Christian life is not one of self-importance or self-fulfillment. But abandoning all of your agenda and placing yourself at God's complete disposal for His agenda. And most of your frustration and disillusionment and grumbling and dissatisfaction that comes in that Christians have in my heart or in your heart is because we fail to grasp the nature of discipleship. We don't understand the Christian life. And Jesus calls us back to that again this morning. And He'll do that again in a few chapters. I you bow your heads.